I've heard reporters and photographers and all say who were at the Jackson sit-in covering it that it was the most threatening, violent, frightening experience they had in the civil rights movement. Coming up on OkraCast, civil rights activist Joan Trumpauer Mulholland remembers the 1963 sit-in at the Woolworths lunch counter in Jackson, Mississippi. Also, Southern Foodways Alliance director John T. Edge on the significance of lunch counters during the civil rights movement. But the problem is that for much of the history of our region, the lunch counter was one of the most segregated spaces in the South. This is OkraCast from the Southern Foodways Alliance headquarters at the University of Mississippi. Keep listening. I want to hear the story of how it came to pass of all the dreads and glory it's time for I'm Anna Hamilton, and welcome to OkraCast from the Southern Foodways Alliance. OkraCast maps food culture across the changing American South. This is a storytelling podcast that explores the dynamic people, places, and traditions of our region. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the landmark law outlawing racial discrimination in places of public accommodation. The bill is an incredibly significant piece of social legislation, banning segregation in schools, at the workplace, and other public facilities. Because of the Civil Rights Act, blacks were afforded many of the same legal rights as whites. But the law didn't come easy activists risked their lives as they protested segregation. Peaceful civil rights demonstrations at libraries, beaches, and restaurants were often met with violence, harassment, and arrests. Lunch counters, particularly during the 1950s and 1960s, were valuable demonstration sites during the fight for equality. One of the most violent and publicized lunch counter sit-ins occurred on May 28, 1963, at the Woolworths Lunch Counter in Jackson, Mississippi. At the time, Joan Trumpower Mulholland was a young student at Tougaloo College who was active in the civil rights movement. Mrs. Mulholland recalls her participation in the Woolworths demonstration and paints an intense and terrifying picture of this catalytic sit-in. It started off quiet enough all around, but it was like exam week at Central, the high school, and this was at lunchtime and as students were getting out and free to roam off campus. They drifted up to the main street of town and into Woolworth, which would be a normal place to go to hang out and get a Coke or something. And the word just sort of spread. Plus, I believe some of the um, well-known segregationist types in town were sort of encouraging students to go that way. It's the same pattern as sit-ins other places. and. The manager of the store didn't want to call in the police, and he didn't want to close the store. He just wanted it all to disappear, which it wasn't going to, and it just got increasingly out of hand. I think students, you saw somebody hassling the sit-in students, and then, okay, so you want to be a little, outdo them, and I think a lot of it became an outdoing situation, but it got pretty rugged, and Constantly things were going on behind us. We, we were being called names and 
the counters had all these condiments setting out like would be over on a sidebar at McDonald's now, but it was all being picked up and dumped on us. And then the spray paint was, things were being snatched off the open counters in the dime stores. Um, everything wasn't packaged up then like it is now. It was just sort of on open counters and that was being utilized to hit us or harass us or spray paint us. And I mean, my hair was up in a bun and that just made it a good handle for someone to grab. I would never have had my hair in a bun if I had planned to be in that sit-in. Eventually, it was sort of like an out-of-body experience, and I've heard that in war zones, soldiers have the same thing. I think it's a survival instinct. It's like your real self, your, your personality, becomes your guardian angel. Your soul leaves you and is sort of up there uh, watching out for you. Um, keeping track of things, but it's just the shell of your body that's at the counter. And sometimes we were praying, and I think I had my New Testament that I always carried with me, and we might be reading the Bible and putting that with our prayers, too. Well, as college president, I either got phone calls or was hearing stuff over the news and all. He came down a long story of phone calls with management and talking with the police and all. But the manager, the management agreed to close the store and turn off the lights and announce it was closed and then the police would agree to see that people got out and it was worked out that the demonstrators would have safe passage out on the sidewalk until cars could come to pick them up to take us back down to Lynch Street. Otherwise, if you just left the store and there was a good-sized mob out there, who knew what alley you'd be pulled down? So we needed to not only get out of the store, but be protected by the police standing on the sidewalk. And our college president got that worked out. I've heard reporters and photographers and all say who were at the Jackson sit-in covering it that it was the most threatening, violent, frightening experience they had in the civil rights movement. Joan Trumpauer Mulholland lives in Virginia. To learn more about her involvement in the civil rights movement, check out the film An Ordinary Hero, the true story of Joan Trumpauer Mulholland. It was produced by her son, Loki Mulholland. John T. Edge, director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, urges us to consider lunch counters like the Woolworths in Jackson, Mississippi. These were contentious sites across the South during the Civil Rights Movement. Edge says that while there's much to celebrate with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the legacy is complicated. Lunch counter to me is, you know, a long slab of polished linoleum with, you know, ten spinner stools in front, you know, and a stainless steel backsplash behind it with the day's menu um, on a chalkboard or on, you know, a backlit menu board. Um, it's a place to get simple, straightforward food, hamburgers, fried chicken, and the like. So it's a very democratic space by design. Um, you know, everyone sits in close proximity to everybody else. And that's the promise of the lunch counter. Everybody eats together. But the problem is that for much of the history of our region, that promise wasn't realized. The lunch counter was one of the most segregated spaces in the South. And by and large, people integrated, restaurant owners integrated. 
And yet there were responses. The quick integration came from places like the Sun and Sand in Jackson, Mississippi, which served a T-bone steak to um, an African-American customer the, the day of the integration. So that, you know, much happened quickly. Many positive things happened quickly. Another response that wasn't so positive was a number of restaurant owners declared that um, they were not restaurants anymore, that overnight they had transformed themselves into key clubs. And key clubs were, in essence, an attempt to refashion restaurants into private spaces. Places like the Crystal Grill in Greenwood, Mississippi, you know, transformed themselves into key clubs and said, we are now serving an exclusive clientele. And that clientele was defined by membership. And that membership oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that membership um, was defined by the color of your skin, not by the fact that you were a card-carrying member. It was a ruse. And uh, it was a ruse that lasted for a good long while. Um, and, and today I think we see the remnants of, of that fight over public space in the rise of private clubs in the South, in the rise of gated communities, this idea that we're gonna take our spaces and put them up behind barriers to others. And I think that's one of the saddest legacies of that. I don't wanna overemphasize it because I think much good came to pass, but I think in this 50th anniversary, we wanna challenge ourselves to think anew about the import of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and what its legacies are. Thinking about that past is just as important as knowing, um, you know, who picked your lettuce or whether the pork you eat in that barbecue sandwich was, you know, harvested from humanely raised pigs. Like, knowing that history is as important as knowing the provenance of your vegetables and meat. John T. Edge is director of the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi. We'll catch up with you again next week. I'm Anna Hamilton, and thanks for listening. Ochrecast is the soundtrack for the Southern Foodways Alliance, bringing you the stories behind the food. The Southern Foodways Alliance documents, studies, and celebrates the diverse food cultures of the changing American South. If you're hungry for more, pay us a visit online at southernfoodways.org. I want to hear a story of how it came to pass. Okay.